think about fathers and we think about freedom and we think about adoption, there's just so much that's wrapped into how God loves us. Um, today we're, we're kicking off a series that we're going to spend some time in this summer on God's faithful presence. God's faithful presence. And the reason we're going to do that is the more I read the Bible and study Scripture, the more I'm convinced that sometimes we get caught up in the middle things and not the big things. Uh, that, that sometimes we, uh, we really focus on how the Bible is about how we get rid of sin and solve the sin problem in our lives. Uh, but really, I become more and more convinced uh, as I read Scripture that the reason we need our sin problem dealt with is not just so our sins are taken away. It is so that we can live in the presence of God and God's presence can live in us. And so when we get that idea, it begins to kind of change our focus a little bit. It changed how we live as Christians a little bit, how we understand what God's job is and what our job is. And so it's a little bit of a change. It's not saying that sin doesn't matter and that having our sins removed isn't important. We do have to have our sins removed, but that's a thing that has to happen for the major goal of being in God's presence to be achieved. And so sin is just something we deal with on the way to getting to the final destination. Now, if we understand that God's presence and his faithful and loving presence is the destination, it starts to be a little shift that makes some significant changes and how we understand what's happening in the cross. When we think about the cross and Jesus dying, it's not just to take away our sins. That happens there. But that's just part of what God is doing so that, that Jesus in dying on the cross takes our sins away. And the purpose of that is so that God can be in our presence and we can have his presence dwelling in us and among us as Christians, as part of the church. And so it's not just about guilt and shame. It's about having this new purpose in this new relationship with God as a result of the cross. This focus on the presence of God reminds us that God's not just trying to change us. He's not coming down and going, boy, you got problems and we got to fix them. I think there are things about me that I need fixed, but it's really more that God wants to, to have a relationship with me. And that God's spirit wants to dwell in me. And when God's presence is in you, there's something about the spirit of God, if it's dwelling within you, is automatically contagious and transforming to you. You can't be in the presence of God and leave unchanged. Um, there's so many times in scripture where people come even into the presence of angels or an image of God in some way, and their lives just totally change from that moment. You can't expect to come into the presence of an almighty God and leave unchanged. And so the presence transforms us, but it's, not, it's a different kind of thing than just having someone come up to you and say, boy, I've got a checklist of all your problems in your life. And, and to kind of explain what I mean, I think we all know someone in our lives who is so inherently good that when you're around them, you want to be better. That when you're around them, you kind of think to yourself, man, they are so just, they have so much integrity. I don't want to be dishonest around them. The way that they talk and use speech in their life is so encouraging, I don't want to complain around them. That is, is something that we aspire to. Their presence uh, affects us in that way. It's different from someone that comes to your house and says, hey, you need to hear some of your faults. I'm just going to go over them. I'm going to write them down and give them to you in a list. I'm going to write to do at the top. And, and I want you to kind of get to this. And, and the problem is that I think sometimes we have more of that view of God, that he's all hung up on our sin issues. 
and it, and it changes our interactions with God because we always go to God with shame and with guilt and with, hey, I've still got all the problems I've got. And we're not going to him as one who has a relationship with him that is just transforming us by the power of his goodness. And so it's a little change in how we think about what God is doing that has a major impact on our relationship with him. And if I'm one of God's kingdom people, and I begin to understand that presence is more important than, than forgiveness, and, and forgiveness is just something that we get to on the way to presence, if I'm a kingdom person that begins to understand that, it changes how I understand my job in the world. Because it's suddenly not my job to go fixing myself and everybody else anymore. It's not about correct obedience and behavior, although that should happen as a result of getting this right. But what really happens is I don't think it's my job to fix planet Earth anymore, which feels pretty good. Because planet Earth is pretty broken, a lot of different ways. But it's not my job to fix it if the big picture is not dealing with sin all the time. If I understand that God's job is to be present to me so that I can be present to him, my job as a kingdom person is to become someone who becomes the faithful presence of God in the world. That I do what God does. And if I'm made in God's image and transformed by Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, what you would expect me to start doing is not going around trying to fix all the world's problems, but instead just being in the world as the faithful presence of God in this moment and in this place. And if I can just do that, God's going to start doing things through me. Not because I'm fixing it, but because the presence of God's transforming goodness is contagious if we'll just embody that in the world. But it's a little bit tricky to actually live out. It's easy to say it. It sounds really good. Uh, The problem is that in our world, the world is very hostile to Christians today and to our values and our morality Uh, And so we live in a world where almost every day you see some Christian complaining, whether it's in person or uh, in a coffee shop or on the Internet, and they're complaining and they're angry and they're frustrated because people are insulting us for our good beliefs. And, And we're angry because we're dishonored because we think that God's way is good and that the way of the world is is bad. And we wish that we had a sense of respect given to us. And we get annoyed because the things that people are criticizing us for often aren't even true. And we get mad and we say, shouldn't we get some respect in the world the way that we deserve as God's good, holy people? We're frustrated. So Jesus, on one occasion, speaks to that. He's got a sermon that he's, uh, he's got a crowd that's gathered around him. He's on a mountain and he starts giving this sermon. And he starts with something called the Beatitudes that I'm not going to do. But as soon as he gets out of the Beatitudes, he has this blessing at the end of it. And so this is Jesus' longest recorded sermon that we have from him. And it begins like this. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there's a disconnect here. Because Jesus says rejoice and be excited when the world insults you and dishonors you. And we just sit around and go, we don't get the respect we think we deserve. 
You know, we're just complaining all the time. And, and that's, in the best case scenarios, a lot of times we're mad about the world. We're mad that the world doesn't treat us like the ones that should get our way all the time. But Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you. Blessed are you when people persecute you. When they say all kinds of evil, false things about you because of me. When they do that, you should rejoice and be glad. I've got good news, guys. Jesus was right. The world thinks we're kind of rotten. Isn't that good news? Doesn't that feel weird to say? But, but the problem is, it feels weird for me to say it, but Jesus said it and meant it. And we've got to take him at his word. We spend so much of our time being mad that Jesus was right. Should we, as Christians, be mad Jesus was right? No, we need to live into this disconnect. We need to be fine with it. We need to quit reading this verse and saying, boy, we've got to figure out how, some way to make Jesus wrong about this. If you're spending a lot of your time as a follower of Jesus trying to disprove things he said, you're probably doing it wrong. And yet we spend a lot of our time doing exactly that. So Jesus, how do we do that? How do we live in a world that is critical of us and try and be the faithful presence of your Father in a world that's, that's just muddy and messy and it's not the way we think it should be and it's not the way you designed it to be. It's a broken world. Well, fortunately, Jesus continues in this sermon. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus says, listen, here's the thing. If you're going to live in a world that persecutes you and says all kinds of awful things about you, here's what you need to do. You need to be salt and you need to be light. And these are two things that just by their very presence transforms the spaces they're in. He doesn't use weapons of, he doesn't use a metaphor of violence or a, a metaphor of power or a metaphor of, of forcing people uh, to no longer do things, an argumentative metaphor. He says, listen, just be transformative and good in the place where you're planted. And he goes on in this sermon for several more chapters, and as he goes through this sermon, what he proceeds to describe over and over again is a way of being in the world and living in the world that's completely different and completely unlike any other life uh, way of living that had ever been described before it. It's a way of living uh, that invites us into being the presence of God in the world, uh, of being transformed people that are contagiously transforming others that come into contact with us and have a relationship with us. And I think that one of the keys to understanding this sermon uh, is that we need to understand that this way is, uh, of living involves us understanding what God's in control of and what we're in control of. So we'll start with God, because this is pretty easy. What is God in control of? Everything. Everything. tell him. what's God in control of? Everything. What's God in control of? Everything. He's got it. He's got it. He's in control. Now, what am I in control of? 
And this is the key of kind of rightly orienting what God's in control of and what I'm in control of. And so here's what you need to do if you're trying to do this later with, on your own, and you're like, what did he say again? You can, take, you can even take a piece of chalk, if you want, in your driveway, and you just draw a little circle, you're gonna hand it off, right there around your feet. You can look down at that circle. Here's what you're in control of. Everything in the circle. You're in charge. That's your job to get that thing right and well-oriented according to what God says is good, what the world says is good. You, you, just, you have to take care of what's in the circle. When we get that point of view and we get that understanding, it starts unlocking so much of what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. It starts unlocking so many of these, these different passages. Uh, and what we see is that if you look at Jesus' teaching about worry, if I'm worried all the time, and this is how most of us work it out, we draw the circle around our feet and we worry all the time about what's going on outside of that circle and how messed up it is and how bad it is. And we get anxious about it and we worry about it. We wish we could do something about it. And it does two things. One, it demeans God's ability to be in charge of what he's in charge of. And it exalts my ability to take charge of something that I have no control over. So I'm already upside down. Instead, when I worry about what's in the circle and don't worry so much about what God's in control of, things start to get better. But we also have a problem if we decide, okay, I'm not going to worry about what's going on outside of my circle, but you know what? I don't really want to work on what's inside of the circle either. So I'm just going to do nothing. I'm just going to do nothing. And so there's two things that happen when we get this wrong. And we can get it wrong in two very different ways. Uh, wrong way, number one, is if I'm worried about what's going on and trying to fix what's going on outside of my circle all the time, and I'm not worried at all about what's inside the circle, you cannot help but become judgmental. You become judgmental of all the problems that other people have without worrying about your own stuff. The other problem that can happen is when we do the opposite, when we say, all right, if I can't fix the world, I'm not going to worry about me either. I'll just be fine with it. Uh, and what happens when we have that issue is that we take on a, a demeanor and an attitude of just assimilating whatever the world says is fine. The world will become a bigger influence if we are not critical of the world in any way and we don't do the work about what's in the circle. We become people who just are blown around with every trend and every movement and every uh, social media hashtag that catches us. We kind of go, boy, that feels true. A lot of people retweeted that. You become fully uh, influenced by the world and culture and not by God. But when we get it right, when we get it right, we start to do things that, that describe, that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about worry and anxiety in one of the longer sections in the sermon. And, and what he's basically saying is, listen, don't worry about stuff you can't change. God's got it. It's like, oh, that's right. God's in charge of the things in the world. Just have faith and worry about yourself, and God will take care of what's out there and what's in here. God's got it. And so the teaching on worry and anxiety starts to make more sense. Jesus teaches about how to approach a brother or sister who are struggling with sin in their lives. And he says, listen, don't go to them if you haven't done your circle work and you've got a big old stick in your eye. Don't go to them and say, hey, I need to talk to you about the speck in your eye, person outside of my circle, when I'm not doing the work inside of my circle. 
The plank and speck teaching is saying, if you're the kind of person that's doing your work in here, then you are the kind of person who has opportunities to talk to other people about the work they're doing in their circle. It opens the door for those things. And these teachings over and over again, as you go through the Sermon on the Mount and think, man, what's he doing? He's describing a way of being and living in the world that doesn't tell us that it's our job to fix everything. It's our job to be the ones that go tell the world everything it's doing wrong. Not our job. It's not our job to try and use every bit of power and influence we have to fix the world. God's got it. He's got it. He's already defeated Satan, and all we're doing right now is winding down the clock to the victory party. God's got it. And so if we begin to put faith in God that he's going to do his part, it's our job to start doing our part. To Instead of worrying about fixing everyone else's problems, we do our work inside of our little circle. And we're going to talk in the next couple weeks about how it's not just a selfish individualistic faith. That what God does as we become Christian people is he actually has different ways that he kind of grows our circle and brings in our family. And he grows our circle and he brings in our friends and he grows our circle and he brings other people in through trust and relationship and other things. But that's to come. And so just stick with me with the like mind your own business stuff for a, a week and we'll, we'll grow the circle as we move forward. OK. But we've got to do our work first or the circle's never going to grow. We'll just either be judgmental or assimilated and look the same as the world with no uh, rudeness in what God says is good or right or wrong. When we get it right, though, and we work on our stuff, we get to, be, we get to let God be in charge of the parts of the world he's in charge of, and we take care of what, what we are. And when we do that, we start to become salt and light. We become naturally transformed people who become naturally transforming to the groups that are around us and that we start building relationships with. It's just baked into how God created the world. And I want to get into a number of scriptures. We're going to go through a lot of texts real quickly so that you can see that God's presence, his faithful presence, is a major part from the very beginning of the story in scripture all the way through to the New Testament and what he's doing in your life today, that this is a major part of how you need to understand God's story always and forever and in your life today. So I want to start with Isaiah uh, 66. In Isaiah 66, the prophet says, This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things and so they came into being, declares the Lord. The Lord declares to the prophet, I made heaven and earth so that I could live here with you and dwell among you, and it'll be my resting place. We so often think that God is a long time ago and far, far away, and God says, no, I created this world to live there and to dwell there with you in your presence and with you in my presence. Psalm 46 that that we read earlier, as you're looking through this, you'll notice I've underlined some of the words. These are all words that either indicate that we should be living in God or that God is living with us. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. As we're reading through this, I want you to think about one other thing. Pay attention to the things God is doing and the things you need to do. 
God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he's brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What's God doing? All kinds of stuff. He's, he's shaking the nations to the, every corner of the earth. What are, what's our job? Be still and know. That's our action. It's God saying, listen, the world is in chaos, but I'm in control. I'll take care of it. What do you need to do? Get in your circle and know that I'm God. And if my people will do that, I will be exalted among the nations and exalted in all the earth because God is with us and is our fortress. This is part of Israel's songbook, and they would have known this and celebrated this. And uh, In Exodus um, 33, there's an occasion where God is with his people, Israel, as they're wandering in the wilderness, and, uh, and, and they've betrayed God, they've been worshiping idols. And the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought out of Egypt, which is just classic, you know, parenting arguments, right? Uh, leave this place with the people you brought out of Egypt, God said to Moses. And if you remember back about 29 chapters ago, um, God says, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and bring out my people. And Moses said, I don't think that's a good idea four times until God got mad. And now here we are. And the Lord said to Moses, leave this with the people you brought out of Egypt. And you got to think Moses is going, this wasn't my idea. I was going to leave them there, okay? Um, but I've done this. I've brought them out. And so they continue kind of this really good parenting argument. Uh, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out uh, all the people, the Canaanites and friends. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, go tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I'll decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Um, if you've ever road tripped with kids, you know this feeling. <laughs> it's where you pull over and you yell, get out of the car. What? Get out of the car. Why? Because I've lost control of my temper and it's safer for you on the side of the road than in the car right now. <laughs> What are you talking about? And then, I, you know, I think I'm going to start using this phrase in, in our family. Because you're stiff-necked people. It is really good. Really good parent stuff. <laughs> I think it would be effective. God says, I can't go with you. 
my presence can't go with you or I will kill you. I'll kill you. Now, this is important because the question that Scripture is asking from the beginning and continues to ask in Exodus is, can God's presence dwell with the people that he created to live with? That's the question. And this text is asking it in a new way. And so in in Exodus 33, we drop down a few verses, and Moses says to the Lord, Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name, and, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Great parent moment number next where Moses says, hey, they're your people, not my people. You made me go get them. They're yours. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, and this is important, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And so the Lord said to Moses, I will do everything you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Because of our relationship, I will go with you. Moses says something here that needs to be on our hearts, minds, and prayers today in the church. If we don't go with the presence of God, then how will the world know that we are his people? Because this is where we get it wrong. They'll know that that we're his people because we yell about the things he would yell about. It's not what Moses says. The world will know that we are his people because we're self-righteous and look down at them. It's not about obedience. It's not about getting all the rules right. It's not about all the things that we tend to obsess about the most. What Moses says is if the world is going to know that we're your people and you're pleased with us, the only way they'll know it is if your presence goes with us. And the church needs to keep crying out to God and saying, God, we can get everything right, we can get everything wrong, but none of it matters if we aren't begging for and proclaiming your presence. That's how the world knows that we're your people and you're our God, is your presence in us and among us. That's what has the power to do all the things that Christians want to have happen in the world, but it's God's presence doing it, not me doing it. Because that's what he's in control of. I'm talking about what I'm in control of. So by the time we get to Ezekiel, one of the prophets later in the Old Testament, uh, Ezekiel is describing one of his visions. And in this vision, uh, as Israel has been taken into exile and they're in Babylon, uh, Ezekiel describes a vision where he sees the presence of the Lord leaving the temple. And listen to how Ezekiel describes this vision. When the cherubim, which are angels, stood still, they also stood still. And when the cherubim rose, they rose with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. And as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance at the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The images that are there, we don't have time to get all of them, but what you need to know is that Ezekiel the prophet is watching God's presence leave the temple where he had dwelled among Israel for centuries. He leaves. 
And later in the book, there's this promise of a time when God will again dwell with his people, when the Spirit will come back into uh, a temple and dwell among them. And and listen to what it says, because it starts with, my servant David will be king over them. David is already dead. What he means is, one from the line of David, a king in David's uh, family and likeness will rise up. And my servant David will be king over them. Spoiler alert, that's Jesus. And they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I give to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors live. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. God says, here's how you're going to know that everything's been fixed and put back to right and that my presence is back, is that the nations will know that my people are holy because I will be living with them. My presence will enter them and be among them. And and now here's the next spoiler alert. God does that through the Holy Spirit that shows up in the New Testament. Four quick New Testament verses that that kind of show you where we're headed here. Uh, The first one is this, Matthew 1 and 23. Uh, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The name that's given to Jesus by the prophets is Emmanuel. It is God is with us. His name is answering the question, can God's presence live among his people? When Jesus is born, the answer is yes in this boy. In John 1 and 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Word that was in the beginning and created is now dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. At the end of his ministry in John 16, Jesus is telling the apostles that He's got to leave. But He says, I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I've said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit is who he's talking about, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says, I need to leave. My presence is going away so the presence of the Spirit can come. And it's going to be better for you. In this same conversation, he says, when the Spirit comes, you will do even greater things than I have done. Jesus says, you will do greater things than I have done because you have the presence of God in you. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus ends it by saying, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Talk so much about forgiveness. Forgiveness is just the thing that we need so that we can get to the presence. It's all about the presence of God. 
And the more we understand that, the more we realize that God is not a long time ago and far, far away, but God's presence is here and it's real, and God's presence is in each of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, and that that presence starts to transform us into contagious transformers of those who are around us. So do I need to go fix the world? No, I just need to be in the world as the faithful presence of God in the world today. God will take care of the rest. I just have to be salt and light and take on this this different way of being that Jesus not only describes but models throughout his ministry and his life and ultimately on the cross. Having our sins dealt with is only a step in answering the biggest question in the Bible. Can we live in the presence of a loving and creating and perfect God? In this series, we're not only going to be answering that with what Jesus tells us is a resounding yes. God's presence can dwell in us and among us. But we're going to be looking at concrete ways that we then embody the presence of God in the world. That practices that we take on, not as individuals, but as a community of believers, that we do things in a way that the world says we see that God's presence is with you. You are God's holy people. Not because we're right about everything or we're fixing everything, but because God's presence is with us. That's when the world will know that we are the followers of Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll pick up there talking about how we begin to live out our job of becoming the faithful presence of God in the world today. But what I hope you leave with today is the awareness that God's faithful presence is the most important promise that Scripture gives us. And when we receive it, it unlocks a whole new way of living and loving in a world that desperately needs to see the presence of God in the world today. If you need to respond to that truth and that promise, you can do so this morning or if you have any other need as we stand and sing together.